0: And I'm delighted to be able to come and once again and to um, read from God's Word and proclaim it to you. It's my great honor and privilege to do so, as it is every week that I have this opportunity. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, you'll find this on page nine hundred and 987. You will be helped, I trust, to have a copy of God's Word open during our time together. We'll be referring to it over and over again as we study this wonderful passage. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word of your own, you don't have a Bible of your own, well, there's Bibles all throughout this building in those pew racks, we'd love for you to just take one of those, and that would be our gift to you today. And so here we are uh, in this uh, wonderful passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, hear now the Word of God. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Our Father, we are thankful for your word and this wonderful prayer that the Apostle offered some 2,000 years ago, what we might learn from it, both in how we might grow as followers of Christ and even grow in the great privilege of prayer. And so help us now, Father. Speak to us. We come here not to evaluate Your Word, but to submit to it. We come, even as we often say, as Samuel said long ago when just a boy, speak, Lord, for Your servants are listening. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, it was in the year 1814 that the 20-year-old John L. Dagg wrote of the morning events that inspired our national anthem. It's an interesting account for a couple reasons. One, uh, Dagg was born in Loudoun County. Number two, by the time John L. Dagg died, he was one of the most respected theologians of Southern Baptist life. In fact, becoming the first American Baptist to write a systematic theology. Well, as a 20-year-old, long before his theological fame, he would write these words. In August 1814, the news reached us that the British vessels were ascending the Potomac. When we returned home, we found that a call had been made on the militia of our county. With hasty preparations, I joined the march and the first night lodged in a hayloft near Leesburg. From this point, we saw the light of the burning Capitol building, which the British had fired the night before. The day following, we crossed the Potomac and descended on the Maryland side to Seneca Mills. On the way, we met some fugitives from the Battle of Bladensburg who seemed to believe that the enemy were close behind them. In a day or two, we received orders to proceed to Baltimore, against which the British were making the ne- their next preparation. On arriving, we are posted in the rear of Fort McHenry. From this position, we had a clear view of the British ships when they landed at North Point, And soon after, we saw across the water the smoke of the battle. Orders were now received that we should march to meet the enemy. On our way... We met the wounded returning from the battle, and passing the entrenchments, we halted for the night between the city and the enemy. Early the next morning, the bombardment of the fort commenced. The next day, our position was several changed, and we were several times in expectation of an immediate attack of the enemy, but as if by mutual consent, the two armies never met. The following night, however, we lay so near them that their encampment was visible from the top of the hill, appeared only a half a mile distant. That indeed was a fearful night, for the roar of cannon and bombs, which had continued through the day, become fiercer and more tremendous. We lay on our arms, and three times during the night were alarmed by the signal of our sentinels and put in order for battle. But just before the day, the firing ceased. All was still. And now the very silence rendered us uneasy. As a question arose in which our personal safety was deeply involved, whether the fort had surrendered during the night. If it had, we might expect a bloody conflict in the morning. If it had not, they would perhaps retire without giving us battle. At the first dawn, every eye was directed towards the fort, to see whether the American banner still waved. Of course, the answer is now famously given to us in the form of a question, isn't it? Oh, say can you see by dawn's early light what so proudly we held at twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. In the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there oh say does that star spangled banner yet wave for the land of the free and the home of the brave i trust you could hear the tension in dag's account Can you hear the fear of the young man, the the hope, the awful reality of an imminent struggle against his fellow men for life and death? Can you hear the uncertainty of the battle which waged throughout the night? What is it? He said, a question arose in which our personal safety was deeply involved, whether the fort had surrendered. Well, I wonder if the Apostle Paul faced a similar tension. When it came to the church in Thessalonica. After all, these are the people amongst whom he worked and prayed and suffered and preached. And yet the enemies, as we have discovered, have ran him out of town, leaving the church without a shepherd. And we have seen in this incredible autobiographical account, perhaps his most autobiographical writing in all of Scripture, that he worried whether they would survive the enemy without their shepherd where they survived the battle. And so, if you will, he waits till dawn's early light to see whether they have surrendered during the night and finds, as Timothy returns to him now in Corinth, that despite their perilous fight, their banner yet waved. I mean, is this is not what he says there, as you know, in chapter 3 and verse 8. For, we, for now we live, he says, if you are standing fast in the Lord. And of course they are because Timothy has come back. We saw there in verse 6. And he has reported to them that that despite their suffering, despite their affliction, despite their confusion, despite the slander, they continue in the faith, they continue to love, they continue to hope as they walk in trust of the Lord. And the the apostle begins to rejoice as his tension is relieved and he writes, beginning really in in chapter 2, verse 17, as we saw the great joy that he has knowing that this church, which he found Continues to follow after the Lord, and then we stopped our account last time, if you remember, in verse eight, and now we resume it here in verse nine. Really, as we can, this wonderful prayer seems to issue forth from the apostle. Of course, if you know anything about the apostle Paul, you know he's a man devoted to prayer. Uh, Paul is constantly praying. He prays from prison. He's prays with the Ephesian elders. He's prayed before he took a journey to Jerusalem. He prayed on a voyage. He prayed in the temple. He prayed in Malta. He's constantly praying for his churches. In fact, he not only is praying for the churches, he tells them what he's praying for. He says, I'm praying for you. And by the way, even we'll see here, this is what I'm praying for you. And I think the reason why he tells them the content of his prayer is because he wants them to pursue that which he asked God to do in their life. He he wants them to grow. He wants them to to grow up. It's almost as if the the apostle is a father raising this family and he, he loves the family and he's delighted everyone's part of the family. But he's not satisfied that they're simply in the family. He wants his kids to mature. He wants them to grow. We, we, of course, as you know, you've been walking this journey with us for now two years, have been delighted to be foster parents to, to our little little girl. She's, she's, by the way, I'll, I'll let you know, you should know this, um, we just this week got the, uh, the court date, um, and in September 20th, uh, this little one, uh, God willing, will become a carn. And so we're uh, delighted and thankful for your prayers. Yeah, praise God. Uh, but two, two years old is a big deal in, our, in, in the carn household. That's when we, we start potty training. And, um, and, 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 and we just, uh, here she comes. She's potty training Sergeant Allegra. And uh, she does not mess around when it comes to potty training. We do this in a week. We nail this out. It's all hands on deck. It's, um, uh, it, we shut down everything else in the family. We, we eat, sleep, and potty train. That's what we do for a week. And I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I wish she was still outside. I'm pretty happy to come to work on that week because it's very stressful and intentional, and everyone's helping out, right? And and so we're soon. This little our little girl will be, begin uh, this process, and as all my children have, of course. Why do we do this? Why why go through such trouble? Well, it's it's time, little 2 year olds It's time to stop acting like a baby, right? It's time to begin to to grow, right? Well, the, well Christians likewise, we need to grow. Right? You don't stop growing. Right? You, don't, you don't want to be a follower of Christ for 20 years and still in spiritual diapers. Right? You want to grow. And Paul wants these people to grow. And so he prays and tells them why he's praying so that they might grow. But I think another reason he tells them why he's praying is not so that they would know how to grow up, but they would know how to pray. In fact, I think we often learn how to pray by listening to others pray. Have you not experienced that? You kind of eavesdrop on those whose walk with Christ perhaps is more close than yours. I mean, this is not what the apostles experienced if they heard Jesus pray over and over again, and after hearing him pray, what did they say? Lord, will you teach us to pray? There was something about overhearing the conversation between the Son of God and the Father and, and the deep intimacy thereof that the apostles longed for that. And Jesus would let them listen to his prayers. For instance, the great high priestly prayer in John 17. And, and so would Paul. I want you to listen to my prayers. I want you to know what I'm praying. And so in most of Paul's letters, he says, not only am I praying for you, this is what I'm praying to help them understand how they can pray. To help them understand how they can grow in their, their Christian virtue. And so we need to grow up in prayer. I, th- I hope even this morning as we look at this passage, our prayer life will be challenged. And many of you will look at this and you maybe say, I don't pray like that, right? I don't pray like this. See, often we pray for the exact same things the world prays for. We ask for the same things that our non-believing neighbors long for. We, we ask for the house to sell and the job to go well and there there'd be safety on the road and, and for the, the, the health report to come back clean and all that's okay and none of that's inappropriate. But I wonder if there's anything about our prayer that, that can only be explained by the gospel in which we believe. I wonder how much of what we pray for has anything to do with the kingdom of God. I wonder how much we pray for, um, for our brothers and sisters spiritually. In fact, often when we when we pray for spiritual needs, sometimes we say, you know, well, God, I, I just want you, will you bless so and so, right? You bless, bless so and so, and bless so and so, and 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 of course that's a well-meaning prayer, I trust, but I, I wonder what we what we actually mean by that. I wonder if we could be a little more specific. I don't know how many times my kids have come to me and said, Dad, will you, Dad, I'd really like your blessing, right? No, they come and say, Dad, I really like ice cream. Right? Right? They're specific. This is what I want. And Paul Paul doesn't go and say, okay, Lord, now I want you to bless the Philippians, and I want you to bless the Athenians, and please bless the, the, the Bereans while you're at it, and bless the Thessalonians. No, no. He's far more specific than that. And my hope is that we'll let the Bible inform our prayers once again to show us what, how we truly need to grow and how, how we truly need to intercede for others. I think the Bible helps us with this, even as we see, first of all, in this beautiful model of prayer, that it is Trinitarian, Trinitarian. Notice, before we look at what he asks, to to whom he asks for, you see in verse 11, does he not say, now may may our God and Father, God and Father, he says, and then you'll see that phrase again there in verse 13, won't you? God and Father. That's who he's praying to. He's praying to his Father, his Heavenly Father, his God and Father. Notice he could have addressed the prayer to the Redeemer. He could have addressed it to the Creator. He could have addressed it to the Almighty. But instead, what does he do? He prays to, to his Father. His Father. Just as Jesus modeled for us, didn't he? Right? Jesus taught. They said, teach us how to pray. And what did Jesus say? When you pray, pray like this. Our Creator... Our God, our, our Almighty. No, he says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven. You, you pray to your Father. I think the, one of the greatest privileges of the relationship we have with God beyond our salvation is our adoption. Please understand, God could save you and not adopt you. There's nothing about salvation that necessitates adoption. Right? He could save you and you could be a servant or you could be, you could be uh, you know, a subject of his, right? But he saves you and says, okay, not only do I want to save you, I'm going to bring you into my family and, and I, your God and I, your creator, am going to become your father. And so my brothers and sisters in Christ, when we pray for God's help, you're praying for your father's help. When you pray for God's kingdom, you're praying for your your father's kingdom. When you're praying for God's forgiveness, you're praying for your father's forgiveness. And I think this is significant and profound in many ways. But simply may I offer you one is that it goes to to the point that God is inclined to answer your prayers precisely because he is your father. Is this not what Jesus taught us? What was it in Luke chapter 11 when he says, you, you fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good to those who ask? In fact, dads, don't, don't you, you, you understand this, right? You as a father are much more inclined to answer your children's requests than those who are not your children. And I've shared this before, but, you know, if I'm, 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 I'm watching the game, right? If, if the Dodgers are on, and, and I'm enjoying the game as they beat the Yankees last night, so praise God, and um, down <laughs> with the evil empire, right? And, uh, and, and, and so I'm watching the game, and, and my little, little uh, two-year-old, she comes up to me, and she's all into Elmo these days, and she says, Daddy Elmo, right? She'll scream it, by the way, Elmo, right? And, uh, and she, she wants to climb up on my lap and, and snuggle and watch Elmo, Well, yeah, we might just watch Elmo. I mean, it depends on the game, to be honest, but um, a little bit of Elmo. Um, We'll watch a little Elmo, cuddle there, spend some quality time with her, loving on her, right? You ask me that, same question, you get a different answer, right? Right? Why? What's the difference? Same request, same request, Elmo. Well, the difference is she's my daughter, her position, right? I'm her father. My brothers and sisters in Christ, may I remind you that God is your Father. And He's not an abusive Father. He's not a distant Father. He's not an uninterested Father. He's not a too busy Father. He's certainly not a too tired Father. He is unlike any Father we have ever known. And you will never understand prayer until you understand you're praying to God, your Father. But you notice that's not all whom He prays to. And this is where it gets really good. He says in verse 11, Now may, God, uh, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus. And then he says, direct our way to you. So you see, you see the content there. We'll look in a moment. But he prays now to Jesus. So in fact, you read on in the prayer. Look in verse 12. And, and may the Lord. Now who's the Lord? Well, he identified him in verse 11. The Lord Jesus. And may the Lord make you increase and abound for love one another and for all as we do for you. So that he, who's he? That's the Lord. May establish your hearts blameless in holiness before whom? Our God and Father. At the coming of whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how Trinitarian this is. You see how specific he is. And may I encourage you in your prayer life to let your Trinitarian theology... Influence the way you interact with your God. For instance, I don't think we should thank the Father for shedding His blood. The Father didn't shed His blood. The Son shed His blood. We could thank the Father for sending the Son to shed His blood. We, we should not say, Father, we're, we, we, we long for your, your return. The Father's not returning. The Son's returning. And so we are we are Trinitarians, and that should be influenced in our In our prayers, we should pray, as Paul, I think, very clearly shows us, very specifically knows which person of the Godhead he's praying to and what he's asking for. And and, and by the way, isn't it wonderful that he's praying to Jesus as well as the Father? And I know, I'm sure I've mentioned to this every sermon in 1 Thessalonians, but once again, we have a clear affirmation of the divinity of Jesus Christ some 15 years after his public ministry. In, in, uh, next to Galatians, the oldest Christian literature we have, and here we have it. The apostle is praying to Jesus as if he believes he is God. And notice, by the way, he doesn't explain to the Thessalonians, oh, by the way, I'm praying to Jesus, this is why. They already assume it. They're on the same page. And I bring this up every time I have the opportunity because I'm so sick of the nonsense on NPR and and Bill Riley and, 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 and whatever else you're watching out there that says that the divinity of Jesus is a third century development by a bunch of bishops hanging out in Rome when it totally ignores the biblical account some 15 years after Jesus lived on this earth. So let's toss aside that nonsense by all the experts who don't happen to actually open the account and read it and notice that Paul seems to think that Jesus is worthy of receiving our prayers. In fact, it's even beyond this. In fact, part of me hates to do this to you. Part of me doesn't care. Um, But um, I I want to just point out, and I'll take 60 seconds, so hold on, maybe you need to check your email or something. I want you to note an issue of grammar here in verse 11, Alright, I know, I said grammar, sorry. Um, verse 11, what does he say? Now make our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, okay, here it is, direct our way to you. The word direct is in the singular. The verb is in the singular. Even though the subject of the verb is in the plural. God, the Father, and Jesus. So let me give you an example. Consider this statement. I pray that the Nationals defeat the Dodgers. Okay? Now, of course, you would have to pray for that because it will take a work of God. Okay? okay? okay. So, all right, that's okay. You would not say, I pray that the Nationals, listen closely, I pray that the Nationals defeats the Dodgers. Right? Because Nationals is plural, it takes the plural verb, which is in English, defeat. The singular verb is defeats, okay? Well, Paul, very strangely, and we do not translate it in the English because it would be so weird, very strangely says, literally, may our God and Father and our Lord Jesus directs our way to you. Plural subject, singular verb. And it is very clear to me that Paul, even though he identifies God as Father and Son, understands that though we have As we know, three persons. We even sing about this morning. He is is one God in three persons. And we have this beautiful Trinitarian prayer. And as he prays to this triune God, he does so with great passion. As you consider, secondly, it is a passionate prayer. Don't you love verse 9 when he says, For what thanks can we return to God for you? What thanks can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. He says, I, "I'm at I'm at loss of words on how to thank God for you. I don't even know where to begin. I don't even know how to how to start to tell God how thankful I am for the joy that you bring in my life." Notice, by the way, when he thinks of this church, he doesn't this church planner. He doesn't congratulate himself. He doesn't puff up his chest as some pastors might be tempted. He knows, as he writes elsewhere, that some plant and others water, but it is God who gives the growth. And so he falls to his knees and says, "Oh Father." how can I thank you? How can I thank you for the joy that I have in this church? And what an encouragement that must have been in the church. Can you imagine receiving a letter like that? Where, where this, I, she said, I don't even know how to thank God for the joy you give me. And this was when the famous painter Benjamin West was a boy. He decided to paint a picture of his sister while his mom was out. And so he gathered uh, some bottles of ink and paper, and, and soon he had more ink on the kitchen walls than he had on the paper this this little man, and when his mom returned and she surveyed the uh, massive mess before her, she also saw her son's attempt at making art, and instead of scolding him, interestingly, she picked up the portrait and she looked at it and declared, what a beautiful picture of your sister, and then she kissed him and walked out of the kitchen, and West would later recall, with that kiss, I became a painter. I think there's something to Paul here. I mean, Thessalonians aren't perfect, are they? You know, we'll see that to be very clear as we get into chapter 4. And yet, what a great encouragement. I just, I'm so thankful to God for the joy you bring. Do you ever pray that? You ever, I mean, do you ever, you ever pray to God? I'm so thankful for the joy that I have among the people called Hamilton Baptist. Because I know, I know, I know many of you, and if and, and you're like me, there is joy in this in this fellowship. We have been celebrating that all this all week in this very difficult week, uh, being with one another. But you ever thank God for? It? You ever think, God? I'm so thankful for so and so. she brings such joy to me. Or Sunday school teachers, you ever say, God, I'm so thankful for little so and so. Whenever he comes to class, he just kind of lifts my spirit. I'm so glad that he's here or she's here. And you might even tell them that. This seems to be what the apostle's doing. He's thanking them. In fact, he does so earnestly and regularly, as you see in verse 10. He says, as we pray most earnestly, not not tempted prayers, earnest, zealous, mighty prayers, and when? Night and day. In other words, all the time. I mean, prayer seems to be part of his life. I think prayer should be part of our life as well. We should be people of prayer, And, and, and yet one of the first things that gets squeezed out whenever we get busy is what? Prayer, right? We're too busy to pray, so we just drop it. We'll do the other things, but prayer kind of just falls away, and there is no doubt we are busy today. We're busy. I, uh, in preparation for this message, I came across a, a journal from the uh, an article from the Atlantic Journal, and you might relate to this. It says, "The world is too big for us; too much going on. Try as you will, you will get behind in the race." It is an incessant strain to keep pace and you still lose ground. Science empties its discoveries in you so fast that you stagger beneath them in hopeless bewilderment. The political world's news is so rapid that you're out of breath trying to keep pace with who's in and who's out. Everything is high pressure and human nature can't endure much more. You relate to that? Maybe. By the way, that was written in 1833. You think busyness is a 21st century reality? I'm afraid I need to dissuade you of such nonsense. No, this has been happening ever since there have been been humans around. You don't think Paul was busy? Oh, I think he might be. And yet he prayed. And yet he prayed with great passion. Even as we see it is a pastoral prayer. I'm really not sure what to call this third point. You'll Forgive me for um, relating to it as a pastor. But he is seems to be praying as a shepherd over his sheep. As you finally see the content of his prayers, first request is found there in verse 10. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. I want to see you. And again in verse 11, now may our our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. You recall from last week, according to chapter 2, verse 18, in some unnamed way, Satan has prevented the apostle from returning to the Thessalonians. And so how do you overcome such an adversary? Well, he does by appealing to God. right? And so now he's asking God to remove the roadblocks set up by this enemy. He says, I'm praying night and day that God would make a way for me to return to you, that God would open a pathway that currently does not exist for me to come. And I, I think we can learn from this a great deal. I think in ministry in your life, certainly. Don't, we, don't you plan, and you labor, and you prepare, and yet my brothers and sisters ultimately were dependent upon God, aren't we? Despite our plans and our efforts, we need to depend upon God, and so we ought to be praying for the opportunities to testify to Christ with our co-workers. We ought to be praying for God. Will you, will you help me have a, just a a Christ-centered conversation with my child today. We ought to be praying that God would open hearts when we teach His Word and even preach it. Right? We long to serve one another, I think. We long to minister to one another. But we need to be in prayer that God would let that happen. Right? It's just as Paul shows. If he's to return, he says, if I'm to get back, God has to open the door. And by the way, he will get back, according to Acts 20. But it will take him five more years to do so. Sometimes God's ways are inscrutable, but he prays for it. And and note in passing that how much he values this Christian fellowship. I just want to be with you. We've seen this over and over again in this letter. He he longs for the joy that their presence brings for them, and and he wants to be reunited. But that's not the only reason he wants to be reunited. He has a job to do. As you read on in verse 10, what else does he pray for? He says there at the end, does he not? And to supply what is lacking in your faith. So what's he going to talk about when he gets there? Are you going to talk about the weather? You know, how, how, how are your travels, Paul? Let did it go for you? No, he said, I want to come and I want to address the deficiencies in your faith. I mean, he was only there for a month before he was forced out. There's quite, quite a bit still to teach them. Perhaps Timothy, is, who has now returned from Thessalonica, as we saw last week, explained their confusions, explained their weaknesses. And so Pastor Paul longed for their spiritual growth. But it is nevertheless somewhat of a shocking statement, I think. I want to supply what is lacking in your faith. That's a little impolite, don't you think? I mean, this is a publicly read letter. They gather together just as we're doing. Hey, Paul sent us, Pastor Paul sent us a letter. Let's read it. Can you imagine a letter from a former pastor that says, I can't wait to see you again to address all your shortcomings? I mean, that's what he's doing. We think, well, what, what do you mean? We have shortcomings. Well, yeah. We do. Uh, would you be offended at that, I wonder? I, I don't know about the Thessalonians. We, we, we can't be sure, but uh, I wonder if they just kind of already knew. Uh, something, something in me, I don't know why, thinks that they knew they had deficiencies. I wonder why is it when the doctor comes and tells us there's something wrong with our physical health, we're not offended at all. But when someone comes and says, brother, I love you, but I, I've noticed this in your life, um, and I, I want to help you, I've noticed this sin." And they point out something wrong with our spiritual health. We think the person might be arrogant, maybe out of line. Right? Uh, and, and I've noticed this as a Christian. It's okay for, for me to admit that I'm a sinner as long as you disagree with me. Right? Right? But, but, but when you agree with me, when you say, Stephen, you're right, you are a sinner. In fact, I've noticed. Right? Okay? Well, then I become awfully insulted, don't I? And sometimes we even do this, we, we even identify our own shortcomings and say, "You know, I, I need to, really need to work in our life. in this area of my life, I'm really, I'm really struggling in this area of my life. And, and how often is the Christian tendency is, "No, no, no, you're OK there." How about, yeah, I've noticed that as well. and I love you, and can I help you?" Paul says, "I want to come and I want to address what's lacking in your faith. We need to humble ourselves and have people like Paul who are close to us who say, I love you, can I help you work on this? Right? It is a pastoral prayer. Fourthly, you'll notice it is a sanctifying prayer. It's at this point, I think we get to the heart of his prayer found in verse 12. As he's really, what is he praying for? What does he really want? He wants them to grow in their love. He says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. We love you and, and God loves you and we want you to love others and this is what we're after. And we keep coming over this theme of love and love and love throughout this letter. In fact, we'll find it throughout the Scripture, won't we? I mean, Christianity is the religion of love. God God, God is love. In fact, uh, the, one of the last things that Mark Cochran told me before he left this earth, was a Thursday night, just a few days before he died, and elders, we're talking about the church in the context of a loving community. And he, point, he, 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 he gathered the elders, if you will, and says, yeah, we need to love one another, but why? And he pointed us to God. He said, don't you understand? God is a community of love. And God has always been sharing and receiving love within himself. And then he invites his people to join him in that. God is a God of love. And 1 John 4, 7 says, Love is from God are the great commandments not to love God and love our neighbor. Do we not read from John three sixteen? It was out of love that he sent his son. Please don't, please don't make the mistake that this is kind of the universal reality in all the major religions of the world. It is not. It is distinctively Christian. For instance... It was Donald Barnhouse, a great Presbyterian pastor from last uh, maybe a century or so ago, was uh, on, on mission in Japan, and he met a Japanese girl there at, at uh, the, the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. And one day in his visit, he asked her if she's a Christian." She replied, "No, I'm a Buddhist. I, I've heard of Jesus," she said, "But I know nothing about it." Well then he asked her a very interesting question. He said, "Do you love?" Buddha? Do you love Buddha? And she said, love. I've never thought about love in relation or connection with religion. You see, her religion is one of, largely, of fear. I mean, you go to Buddhist country, or Hindu country for that matter, and there are statues of their deities everywhere, and quite often they're fierce monsters, which need to be placated through incense and prayers and wheels and all the rest. Buddhists don't love Buddha. And by the way, Buddha doesn't love uh, Buddhists. And and, and certainly this is true of of Hindus. Muslims don't particularly love Allah. And you can read the Quran. I haven't read it, but I've heard this testified to me by those who have. There is no great affirmation in the entire book that Allah loves his people. It's not part of their faith. Christianity is distinct in that it is a religion of love. We are loved by God and we love him and therefore called to love others, which is what Paul is praying for here, is he not? I want you to pray for, I want you to love others, love others. And what does he mean by that? Does he mean I want you to to have a tingling sensation when you're next to one another? All right, I want you get the flutters in the belly. I mean, we have, as Americans, have romanticized love. Maybe it's a Western thing. And that, that love is expressed in the longing gazes and all the rest. I, of course, I, I remember when I was in college and I was, I was 700 miles away from my sweetheart who was a year behind me in high school right, and, and she'll testify, she's sitting right over there, she'll make the phone calls, and when we would had uh, nothing left to talk about, um, we, we did the whole, uh, you hang up, no, 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 you hang up, right, and you, you hang up, and then, and then my, my roommate over there is kind of gagging in the, the trash can over there, it's all rather gross and, and uh, ridiculous, and by the way, some of you won't even realize this, but you used to pay for long-distance calls, you remember that, right, it's 25 cents a minute, And there we are, falling asleep on the phone, because neither of us want to hang up. And so love not not only means you got flutters in the tummy, love means you're stupid, right? (laughs) And that's what we think about love. It's gooey and soft and sweet, and maybe there's a place for that. In fact, there is a place for that, isn't there? Let's not minimize that. Let's not go too far. The Bible celebrates that kind of love. There's a whole book about it and, and, and other passages. But the biblical love is far more than that. In fact, it is far less about the feeling you receive when you're near one another and far more about your desire to sacrifice for their good. What about that famous verse there in Galatians 2.20 when Paul says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Who loved me and, what is it, gave himself for me. He loved me and sacrificed for me. And so Paul here prays, that this would abound, he said, among the Thessalonians. I'm praying that you may increase and abound in love. Which is interesting because he's already commended them. Look back in chapter 1 and verse 3 when he commends them for their labor of love. Remember that? Now look over in chapter 4 verse 9. Look what he'll say. It is astonishing uh, praise to them. Now concerning, chapter 4 verse 9, brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, right? He says, you, man, you guys, are, you guys are, are, are doing such a great job loving each other and you're laboring in love and no one even needs to talk to you and teach you about love, right? You love each other so well and yet what is he praying for here? Just a few verses before uh, chapter four, verse nine. He says, I want it to grow. I want it to abound. I'm praying that it'll grow more and more because you never reach that destination. You're not there yet. I want you to abound in love. What a prayer, In a prayer, you ever pray that? God, I just want to, I want to abound in love. I I want it to grow. I want want our church to love in situations which which an un-God-inspired love would have given up long before. I want us to be extravagant in our love. That's what Paul's praying for here. God, make them more loving. Some of you don't like prayers like this. Some of you say, well, what, what, about, what about free will? Where's my free will? God can't make me do anything. Well, Paul seems to be of a different mind, doesn't he? He says, I want you to cause them to love. Make them love. Paul prays, God, don't leave us to our own free will. I'll, you know, free will is going to take you, uh, you, you. When I use my freedom, it takes me into sin quite often. Right? And he's saying, God, overcome the rebellion. Make them what they ought to be. Love, cause love. And love for who? Well, you notice two groups. Love for one another, he says, there in verse 12, you see it, and love for all. So the first group would be the church, the second group would be the, the world. The church, even I believe I mentioned last week, was unique, there was, it was without parallel in the ancient world, where the high class and the low class and the slaves and the free, right? Just think about slaves and free, wealthy, poor, Jews and Gentiles, united together in love. People that should be hating each other, screaming at each other, yelling at each other, right? Other sides with their picket and not wanting to be anywhere near them. They're they're united, radically loving each other. God was creating a new society, overcoming the ravages of sin. This is called the kingdom of God where he's bringing people together who learn to love as God has loved them. The church should show a diversity and love combined together that is absurd to the world. That there's nothing about because of our unity in Christ. This is one of the reasons why we covenant together. This is why we say we'll serve one another selflessly. We'll share each other's joys. Bear each other's burdens. Aid each other in sickness and distress. Right? That's a, that's a, these are acts of love. Love within the church. And then he says love for all men. For all men. Not just love for those here, but love for those out there. And, and to be honest, I, I could think of no better illustration for loving for all men than uh, yesterday at 2 o'clock when, I don't know, what, 700, 800 people packed this, this building, right? Lining the walls, hundreds in the foyer, looking through the windows, right? Why? 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 So two hours out there in the parking lot in the heat with jackets and ties, standing? Why? Because there was a man named Mark Cochran, who what? Who's great at the piano? Right. Is that why they're here? Man, that guy could play the piano. I need to come here. Is that why? He's great woodworker. Man, this guy, that guy can make. You know, he's great at cutting wood. I need to come and pay him. No, because he loved them. Right? Isn't that why? He loved. Them. That's what Paul's praying for. God, I want, I want your people to love. All people. What a prayer! Do you love people like that? Right. He's love, love as as Jesus said, your neighbor. Remember, the scribe came up to Jesus and said, "Okay, well then, who's my neighbor?" Right? Jesus says, "Okay, I want you to love neighbor." The scribe says, "Who's my neighbor?" And it, he doesn't ask because he's because he's wanting to love a bunch of people. He says, okay, if I have to love my neighbor, let's define that bad boy. It's because I, I want to love as few people as I possibly can, okay? So let's limit it so I know who I don't have to love. And what does Jesus say? He tells him a story of a Samaritan, a half-caste, a half-breed, a hated heretic who comes and loves a Jew and great sacrifice. Not because he's got the fluttery tummy, but he gives and sacrifices and loves. And Jesus says, this, this is how you are to love. That, 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 Jesus said, don't you dare try to love this. Love, the Christian love overcomes lifestyle. It overcomes age differences. It overcomes political th- uh, philosophies. It overcomes sexual orientation. It overcomes wealth. It overcomes what you look like and the color of your skin. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to love all people. All people. As Christ has loved. This is what the early church would do. It was the early uh, Roman emperor, Julian, who was so upset by the growth of Christianity and the decline of paganism, he writes a letter in disgust to his friends saying, "...the religion of the Greeks does not appear to prosper. Why do we observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause?" For it is disgraceful when Christians support our poor in addition to their own. Everyone is able to see that our own are in want of aid from us. He says, you know, we're not even taking care of our own. And here come these Christians who are so different. And they may not agree with what we do. They may disagree with our practices and our beliefs. But this one thing we know, they sure love us. And they're caring for us. This is what Paul's praying for. I wonder, do we pray like that? I wonder, do we long to be like that? Do we pray, God, help us to abound? God, I want to become more loving. This last time you prayed that? God, I, I, I struggle loving so-and-so. Forgive me. Help my love to grow deep and broad and white wide as Christ has shown me how to love. Maybe even over lunch today, you could look at each other and say, okay, how can, how can we grow in love? What can we do? What would that look like? But you might begin to consider this as the apostle prays for it, that you too might pray for it. There's a purpose in all of it, as you see in verse 13. You see that verse 13 begins with that phrase, so that I want your love to abound. Why? So that he may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. The, the reference to blameless there is a reference to our behavior, our ethics. It, it's literally without stumbling. And it is the idea not that we don't stumble, but rather we don't cause others to stumble. Right? We're not leading other people into sin. So blamelessness is our ethics. Holiness has to do with our devotion. We are to be a holy people. God has called us to be a holy people, a people devoted to our Father, a people totally committed to His service and to His will. And He says, I want you to grow in love so that you might be blameless and holy in order to prepare for the return of Christ as we consider briefly and lastly a hopeful prayer. It is a hopeful prayer, isn't it? Once again, the apostle points us to Christ's return. As you see there in verse 13, he ends saying, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So this is now the third time in three chapters he's told us Jesus is returning. He'll spend most of chapter 4 and most of chapter 5 unfolding what that will be like. He'll spend most of Second Thessalonians discussing the implications of the return of Christ. This was something that was in the forefront of Paul's mind. He's saying, I'm praying that you be holy. Why? Because Jesus is coming, and he's not coming alone, you know. He's coming with all his saints, or literally, he's coming with his holy ones. So I want you to be holy because Christ is coming, and he's bringing his holy ones with him. I, I want you to be ready for that, Paul says. Right? You don't want to show up for your wedding in your pajamas, right? You want to be ready? You don't want want Christ to come and find you in the sty of disobedience, do you? And and maybe that may not be a powerful motivator to you, but it certainly was for the Apostle Paul. He talks about it over and over and over again. That the return of Christ compelled his ministry. It compelled his mission. It compelled his love. It compelled his sacrifice. He continually saying, I want to be ready on that day. Isn't that what Jesus taught us? Don't worry about when it's coming. No one knows when it's coming. Just be worried whether you're doing what you're supposed to be doing when it does come. you be ready for that day? Do you want to be ready for that day? Is that anywhere on your radar? Maybe you find yourself struggling with loving others. Maybe you find yourself struggling with living a, a, a Christian life. Maybe it's because you've taken your eyes off the goal. I mean, it's hard to run the race unless we have our eyes on the goal, I think. Jesus is returning. He's coming. We sing about it, right? It, it is well. He's coming. Lord, haste the day. Bring it soon. I've been praying all week. God, won't you come this week? Maybe you will come today. I don't know. But I want to be ready for that. He is returning. Are you ready? Of course, the way to get ready is not by fixing up your life, ultimately. It's by bowing your knee, isn't it? He's coming back, not, not, uh, <laughs> he's not wearing a carnigan when he returns, okay? Um, he's got a crown upon his head and a sword on his belt. He's coming as a king. You ought to bow your knee to this king. This king is returning because he was already here. And he came as a savior. And the work of salvation is chiefly seen in the perfect life he lived. In fact, you want to talk about a holy and blameless life, look no farther than Jesus. He's the only one who did it. You want to talk about someone who abounded in love, look to Jesus. He alone loved as he should. And yet he died upon a cross. Why? So that he may take my place. He might take your place if you would trust in him. That he would pay for our sins and that the Father would pour out his wrath that was due for me on my substitute, namely Jesus. And three days later, he proved that God has received his payment for our sin by being raised from the dead, ascended into heaven with the promise that one day I shall come as king. And now he declares before he comes that anyone who would bow their knee to King Jesus in faith will be saved by him, and he would receive them. And when he comes, not as his enemy, but as, as, as a brother or sister, As a fellow child of God, the scripture says. In fact, the Bible tells us as we rehearse, perhaps on a weekly basis, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is what? Our Lord. Do you know what that word means? He's our king. I submit. That's repentance. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that's faith. You shall be saved. There it is. (laughs) Write it down. Put it away. That's the word of God. That's how to be saved. That's how to be ready for his return. And all who have bowed their knee, as I trust most of us have, may when, when he comes may he find us ready doing the work he has called us to do. I recently came across a story of a, of a tourist, and I'll, I'll end with this, who was visiting uh, the sites at Lake Como in northern Italy. And he arrived at the beautiful estate and castle of the Villa Ascaniti. And even though uh, it wasn't open for tourists that, that day, uh, he forced his way in. I don't know if you know people like that. I think they're incredible, right? Just pushed open the ornamental iron gate and he ventured inside and everything was just uh, unbelievably beautiful. The flowers were blooming in extravagant color. The, the, the shrubbery was manicured to precision. And he noticed Over at one side of the castle, a gardener who was literally on his hands and knees, clipping by hand the blades of grass in a section of the lawn. And he walked over and said, I hope you don't mind uh, a visitor having a look at your gardens. The gardener replied, you're more than welcome, I'm glad to have a guest. So the visitor continued touring the expansive grounds, and then when he, he returned to the gardener, he asked, you know, is the owner here today? I'm afraid not, the gardener replied, he's away. Well, when was the last time you saw him, he asked. At this, the gardener laughed and said, almost 12 years ago. 12 years, the tourist said. You mean this enchanting place has been empty for 12 years? That's correct, the gardener said. The tourist then said, well, do you ever see the owner personally? Still clipping and pruning in this minute detail, the, the gardener answered, never. He just sends his instructions through his agents. Well, the tourist really couldn't, couldn't believe it. He said, but you have, you have everything so pristinely beautiful. It's perfectly manicured. It looks like you're expecting him tomorrow. At this, the gardener straightened up, looked up at his guests and said with a smile, oh, no, sir, not tomorrow. I expect him to come anytime today. I wonder if God would put that expectation in our hearts. That Christ might come at any time, as he said. And that therefore, we might find motivation in living for him. And direction in our prayers. That we might even pray, as the church has been praying now for some 2,000 years. Come, Lord Jesus. And then we would live in light of that return. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that Christ is returning. There's coming a day, and it might be today, we know not. It is not for us to know. It's coming a day when he's coming. And on that day, he shall receive all who have bowed their knee to him in faith into an eternal kingdom that your scripture calls a new heaven and a new earth there to live with our God in glorified bodies in a glorified world forever and ever and ever. May we be found living for that day. May we be found living in honor of our King, uh, doing the work that He calls us to do, pleasing our Father in what we say and how we live. Will You put that in our hearts? Will You help us even to pray for it? Of course, even now, as we pray. Father, we pray for... Those here who perhaps who do not know Christ. I wonder what what do they base their hope on? What do they trust in? Would you even now help them understand that to trust in their own goodness and righteousness is unshaky ground indeed? That Christ has died for a reason. He's risen for a reason. And he's died to save sinners like me and like them. And that even now, according to your grace, you might help them to see the beauty of Jesus, the forgiveness he offers, and the love that he would shed upon their hearts if they would bow their knee to King Jesus in faith, submitting their life to him. Do this even now as we await his return, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.